All right, we will be in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And let me make just a couple of introductory comments about this passage. Uh, it's interesting because it is primarily about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, just so you don't think he was the founder of the Baptist movement. Uh, they are interchangeable. John the Baptist is a title that comes from what he did. We'll talk about that a little bit tonight. But this is an interesting passage because it covers a lot of ground in a short amount of text. And we'll be looking at verses 19 to 34. And I want to pull all this material together uh, around actually only two points. And for those who get nervous, uh, the first one is considerably longer than the second point. Okay, so let me front load it by letting you know that. Let me also say that this passage is primarily about John the Baptist. And we talk about Jesus, but this is really about him, and we will talk about why that's even the case. But to organize our time together, let me give you my first point, and then we'll jump in. The first point is the messenger. The second one is going to be the message. But let's take a look at the messenger himself, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. One way to think about this, this is the witness. This is his account, so to speak, or an account about him. And the testimony of John took place when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now let's talk about that phrase, the Jews. Now this is an expression that comes up 68 times in the Greek text of John. Sometimes it's a neutral, sometimes it's positive, but most often when it's used like this, it's actually in a negative sense. And what's interesting about this is John, who wrote this gospel, was Jewish. Jesus, obviously Jewish. He's writing about John the Baptist, who was Jewish. But when he uses this phrase, the Jews, it's kind of a shorthand to talk about the group of Jews that opposed Jesus. This was a faction that caused Jesus trouble throughout his entire ministry. And they had a very specific question. And that question, of course, is, who are you? And I think if we are relatively new to this story, that raises a few interesting and very warranted questions for us. First of which is, so why are they so interested in John the Baptist? And the answer to that question is quite simply because he had made quite a stir. He'd been out teaching for a while. He had begun to baptize, and we'll talk about the significance of that baptism in a bit. And people were going out to him and wanted to hear what he had to say and participate in the baptism that he offered. And so <coughs> they were within reasonable thinking to try to get to the bottom of who this guy was. Now, for us, I think we have another question, and that is, so why spend this many verses on John the Baptist? Why would John the Apostle feel compelled to tell us this much about who this man was? And let me uh, dig in a little bit on that. Let's start first with uh, what I learned from the Gospel uh, Transformation Bible. They said this, for us, John the Baptist is a central character in the gospel because of the unique role that he played in the history of redemption. He straddles the Old and the New Testaments like a redemptive bridge. I love that imagery. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and at the same time, he was the first to herald the arrival of God's promised kingdom in Jesus. That's what we see in Isaiah chapter 40, 
verse 3. And if you know anything about his story, about his character, about what he's about, he's one of a kind. He grew into his role as a prophet. He wore a camel hair coat. He fed on wild honey and locusts and off of the land he lived, and he spent a lot of time with God. In fact, Jesus says later he was the greatest man who ever lived, of course, excluding himself. But moreover, he was the supreme witness of all of history because he knew who Jesus was, and he points that out so clearly. It was also important to understand the context in which John stepped. There was a lot of uh, confusion spiritually going on there. And so here he rises up and he says what he has to say to this effectively delegation, almost like a congressional fact-finding committee, except these guys actually find facts. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> and they were there to try to get to the bottom of who Jesus was. And I love how he answers. Look at verse 20. It says, he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, what have we learned in our study of Scripture over the years? If you see something repeated, it's there for what? Emphasis. And so what John is telling us here is that he was stressing to them, I am not the Christ. Now, I find that interesting because they didn't walk up and ask him, hey, are you the Christ? He just says, I am not the Christ. So he had some insight into what they were coming to ask him, and he wanted to be very clear who he was not before he talked about who he was. That's an insight into this man's character. But after laying down that foundation, they ask him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. That's my favorite part of this section of text. It was a fair question. He certainly looked kind of like Elijah. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was weird, like Elijah in some ways. But here he was, and he said, that's not who I am. Now, Elijah is also a big deal because he was a representative of all of Israel's prophets. We find out that uh, it, he always has played a significant role in the, the story of God. And then they come out with another question. And he say, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And what this is, is not a reference to Elijah, but he's talking about a prophet that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, uh, where Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. But John's saying, that's not me either. So verse 22, they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Who, what do you say about yourself? And watch this. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So last week, what did we see? We heard that Jesus is the word, and now we meet John, the voice, the way preparer. One way to think about this, I don't know if you ever saw this, but I saw this a lot growing up. You live in an area where you see somebody making a road. Sometimes it was, you know, four or five farmers cutting land through their, or cutting a road through their property, but most often it was some kind of road crew, and they are preparing for people to drive through there. It's a messy, arduous process, but one day there's going to be cars run on the interstate that they were building. That's who John was. He was the road crew. 
for Jesus to come in and to do what he needed to do. He was the way preparer. He was the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, we'll learn more about, particularly troublesome group of individuals, but a highly influential group of Jews who emphasized meticulous observance of God's law. It's both from the Old Testament and all the things that they made up and added on top of it. And ultimately, they lead to the demise of Jesus. A few of them, at least one of them, meets Jesus along the way, but typically they are understood to be a very troublesome group. Verse 25, and they ask him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them saying, I baptized with water, but among, uh, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now we'll talk more about John's baptism later because it comes up again. But what he's doing here is preparatory in nature. The baptism that he was doing is not like any view of baptism that someone would hold today. It's kind of a, a, a one-off and it was to, to show repentance, and it was in preparation for what Jesus uh, would come uh, with his baptism. We'll talk about that as well. And then also the, the types of baptism that are practiced today. So what, what they were getting at was you are doing this in some kind of spiritual authority. That, that's why they asked the question. And then he says, listen, there's one coming He's got a baptism far beyond me. He is far beyond me, and you need to pay attention to him. And this way that he describes it here, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, that would have meant a great deal to them. Because in that day, nobody was walking around in Air Jordans. Nobody had any Cole Hans to wear. Everybody wore sandals, or they went barefoot. And so for sandals to be strapped that was a task because of the dirtiness of it and the smelliness of it for only the lowest slave and john is saying me in comparison to this one that has come among you now jesus i'm not even worthy to untie his sandal and therein i think lies the application for us from this section of the text i think it's two things that we can take from what John is saying here about John. The first one is humility. And the second one is knowing and playing our part in God's story. Now, the humility part. Let's make sure we understand who John the Baptist was and, and what he was about. He was not some Johnny-come-lately. He was not some spiritual neophyte that fell off the back of the spiritual turnip truck as it rambled through Jerusalem. This was a very powerful spiritual individual and who was highly respected and at least revered to some degree by many in that area. We also know that he was a Nazarite from the time he was born. And in accordance with that vow, he never cut his hair. He never touched a dead body. He never drank any kind of wine. He lived a pure and physically uncontaminated life. He was filled from, with the Holy Spirit from even before his birth. And Jesus said himself, he was the greatest of all men. 
And so here he stands and says, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's shoe. It reminds me of a story I came across this week. There is a conductor, this is a well-known story, Arturo Toscanini. He conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And at one point he did this and it was a brilliant performance. The audience went absolutely wild, which actually does happen at classical music performances. I know that that may be hard to believe that people can put down wine and cheese and lose their minds in their tuxedos, but I've seen it on video, it happens. And in this moment, after they're losing their minds, Tuscanini stands there and he bows and bows and bows, which is kind of funny because this guy had quite an ego from what I understand. And then he quiets everybody down and he looks at the orchestra and he leans toward them in this, this whisper. He says, gentlemen, I am nothing. And then he looks at them and he says, gentlemen, you are nothing. But Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. I think that captures the essence of what John was saying and what John was about. Now, let me qualify how we need to appropriate this in our lives, because I think there is a way to hear this that is not exactly in tune with the rest of Scripture. If your takeaway is, I am absolutely nothing and worthless, and Jesus is awesome, well, you got the second half of that right, but the first half of that is wrong. Because if you look at the rest of Scripture, and you think about what we learned last week, and something that we talk about a lot, a lot of the time, and that's on purpose, the value that we have to God as His sons and daughters, our identity in Christ being the truest thing about us, Jesus is everything, but, but we are something. And our somethingness, this is where we get off track. It's not because we're awesome. It's because God is awesome. Let me give you just a couple of examples. There's some wonderful musicians in this room. Part of the reason they are wonderful musicians is because they work hard. But you know where that strength comes from? It comes from God. Part of the reason they're wonderful musicians is because they have real talent. But where does that talent come from? It comes from God. So when we really get in tune with, I think, the spirit of what John offers us here by example, and also what the rest of Scripture teaches, is that we hold these things in tension. There's a sense in which we really are nothing, and we really are something, because in both cases, Jesus is everything. Does that make sense? Because this truth in the wrong hands leads to things like this. Like if you get this wrong, your kid works hard, they get an A on a paper, they really do good work, and you go, son, you are nothing. But Jesus is everything. I think your kid is going to be like, well, if I'm nothing, I'm not going back to class, dude. (laughs) I'm going to take my nothingness to the park. Deuces. That's clearly not the way God wants us to live. But at the same time, if we overdose on this and we strut around with the anti-John the Baptist, well, then we're certainly missing it there, too. So let's get what Tuscanini is teaching his musicians. 
Let's get what John is teaching other Christians. And most importantly, let's get what God is saying about himself through the Bible. That we are nothing. And Jesus is everything. And the something we have, the value we have, the work we do that will matter in 10,000 years is infused and enlivened and enabled by the gifts and the Spirit of God that are at work with among, among us. So let's hear that, let's handle that, and let that cultivate an appropriate gospel humility among us. Now let me say one other thing here, because it's pretty similar to this, but it's worth a little bit of a nuance. Second thing I would say on this application is, this guy knew his role. Modern vernacular, he stayed in his lane. He did not like try to take selfies with Jesus and be like, I'm just trying to get in on his credibility. You know what I'm talking about. Some of us in this room, we've done that. We know we have. But he, he didn't have any of that. He knew his role. He was happy to point to him. He didn't say, I'm the word spokesman. He said, I'm the voice. I'm just telling you about this guy over here. And if we can, let me say it like this, the more focused we can zero in on who we are and what God has made us to be, and in whatever season of life we're in right now, the more we can hone in on what he's called us to do, the more joy we're going to experience, the less stress we're going to experience, the less existential angst about things we're going to experience, and we just play our part and be faithful and trust God with the results. Now, is any of us going to get that perfectly right? Of course not. You need to come back next week so we can keep working on this together, right? But you can see the vision that I'm casting there. He knew what God wanted him to do. He didn't covet Jesus' part. He didn't say, man, I wish I could do what these other guys are doing. He just did what he needed to do, and that was enough. And so we need to hear that, and we need to be helped by that. And we need to lean on God and lean on one another to see what only God can do in our lives, in our story, wherever it goes. So that's the first point, the messenger. Now let's talk about the message. Verse 29 and following. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now I know some of us in this room have probably been through Strengths Finder or, or some one of those things where you like write out your purpose statement. Listen, take a page from John's playbook here. This guy, he knew who he was, and he knew what he was sent to do. Look again at what he said about Jesus. This is the essence of the message. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then he gives commentary about it. Now, this notion here of the Lamb of God is really important. It would have been etched in the Jewish mindset at this point. Their story could go all the way back to Abraham and Isaac, Genesis chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. 
Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham replied, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. It's also possible that they would have hearkened back. John likely would have had this in view. The Passover lamb, the story of the application of the blood over the door, Isaiah 53, 6 and 7. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So this notion here of the lamb of God, it's as important as it gets. Preach the word commentary is a help to us here. Always are. Let me just read this to you verbatim. The gospel centers upon Christ as the sin bearer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Most of us understand what John is saying. However, our salvation does not depend upon our formulation of the doctrine of the atonement, but on our experience of it. Is he our Lamb? Do we really believe that he died for us? If we will keep the wonder of the atonement before us, we will be different people. The lamb is our eternal message. The encounter between Abraham and Isaac prophesied his sacrifice. The Passover applied the principle of his sacrifice. Isaiah 53 personified the sacrifice. And John 1 identifies the sacrifice. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Friends, that is the message of Christianity. If you boil it all down, what do those people believe? This is what we believe. Now, is there more to say about Christianity? You better believe it. But is there less to say than this? There is not. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, if we will live in light of that truth, we will indeed be different. Eternity will be changed for us and this life will be changed for us. Some of you this week got wonderful news. Others of you got terrible news. But if you can Keep the Lamb of God in view. It helps resize everything. It helps you see that your greatest triumph, nor your greatest failure or worst phone call, is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. And it gives you strength to carry on both in triumph and in tragedy. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Let me say just another couple of things here. This will not be exhaustive, but about this baptism of John. I think the best way to understand it, just like we talked about it, is was, it, it was preparatory in nature. I would like to call it a one-off because, again, it, it's not like any view of baptism that we would see today. And what's interesting is, on top of that, 
There's yet another type of baptism that is described right here as we close out the passage. Take a look at this. It says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So he's giving them insight into how he knew who Jesus was and what to do. God spoke to him. He helped him. He ID'd him. And then he talks about this baptism with the Holy Spirit. I've got some charismatic friends that think that that means one thing, and we have to disagree or agree to disagree about some of that. But what he's getting at here is he's talking about not even water baptism, but baptism into Christ, baptism into the Spirit, if you will, what happens when we become Christians. And then John goes on to say, and I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. And I think when we kind of take all that together and, and think about all the different things that we could say and things that, that we could discuss and maybe not agree on 100%. What I love about the end of this passage is the clarity with which it puts forward that on which we must agree. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the thing I love about John the most, I love the humility, I love the purpose, I love the sense of who he was and what he came to do, but the focus and the simplicity and the stark reality of the message, we would be well served to remember. Because listen, in our day and age, I am all for building relationships with people it does take a long time to really be able to, to share the gospel with people. Like, it's complicated today in one sense. But in another sense, it's not complicated at all. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think that clarity and that focus, I don't know about you, but that, that's helpful to me. Because I have a whole host of unbelievers in my life now, some new relationships that I didn't have six, eight, ten months ago. And as I am building relationships with them and thinking about how can I get to Jesus from what we're talking about over here, this passage is helpful. This is the destination to which I am driving. I want to get this in front of them in as articulate and in as an appropriate way as possible. And friends, I think we would all be well served to drive in this direction together. Because of all the things that Christianity has to offer, all the ways that it can help you parent and manage money and run your marriage and all, the, all those things. If you don't have this, that doesn't matter. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the foundation on which everything else is built. So here's how I want to end tonight. I want to speak to people who might not yet know Jesus, and I want to speak to people who already do. Remember back to what I said before. People are not saved by whether or not they understand this truth. 
this Christianity is not about, do you, do you cognitively understand what John is saying? Christianity is about, do you believe in your heart, in your soul, that what he is saying is true? Has Jesus, the Lamb of God, taken away your sins? That's how people become Christians. And if you can't say with full confidence tonight that he has taken your sin away, then friend, your response, most fundamental response to this passage is to hear the good news of the gospel. It's to turn from your sin. It's to trust in Christ. And it's to let Jesus save you. Every single person in this room that is a Christian, that's how we all got in. The ground is level at the cross. We all come in through the same door. Jesus has to take away our sin. You can't work it out on your own. You can't resolve your issues by yourself. Jesus has got to save you. And if that strikes a chord with you today, in just a minute when the rest of us take communion, you hold off. But goodness, we want nothing more for you than for you to have Jesus take your sins away. Now, if you have already embraced that truth, let me say it like this. Jesus takes away our sins in a salvific way, but he also takes away our sins in a sanctification way. See, there's a time when we come to the place where he forgives our sins. But then after that point, don't we all stumble and fall, make a mess and sin here and sin here and sin here? Jesus cares about those sins too. And he wants to forgive them and he wants to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's what this same John says over in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And that verse is written to believers. And so for some this week who had a rotten week, you got into all kinds of trouble. We don't even have to illuminate it because you know what I'm talking about. Can I remind you about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Now, he's talking about the salvific sense, but guess what? That applies for us in the sanctification sense. And I would like to encourage you like I have for years to walk in the footsteps of D.L. Moody, who said this, that he liked to keep short accounts with God. Meaning that from the time of his failure to the time of his repentance and the experience of his forgiveness, yet again, it was a very short distance. And if you've not had a time to confess your sins this week, guess what? You have one now. In just a bit, before we take communion, you take that opportunity and be cleansed and restored tonight. And this week, when you fumble again, because you will, let's shorten that distance. Because behold, we know the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, that's good news. That's good news on a Sunday night. That's good news on a Monday morning. That's good news on a difficult Thursday evening. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are thankful 
for the messenger and for the message. Lord, thank you for calling out John, raising him up to do what he did, giving him strength and courage and all that, giving him humility, giving him a sense of purpose that we can emulate in a healthy way. But Lord, even more than we're thankful for the messenger, we are so thankful for the message. Lord, we are thankful that you indeed take away the sins of the world. We thank you for the privilege to be reminded of it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.